The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box, and these are your headlines. Asian markets follow Wall Street's late rebound, bouncing back from multi-month lows. Crude also recovers after closing out the worst week of losses in more than nine months. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris looks to counter Chinese influence and reassure Asian allies as she kicks off a five-day visit to the region. We will bring you updates throughout the morning. Germany's CDU and SPD are level in the polls with just five weeks to go until the general election as support for Chancellor Angela Merkel's party wanes in the largest drop since 2017. It is worth fighting in the remaining 35 days, every hour to ensure that the CDU and the CSU are strong in the German Bundestag, every hour to ensure that we shape Germany well and lead it into a good future and that we do so, of course, with Armin Laschet as our future Chancellor. Plus, the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg tells CNBC the organization is working round the clock to get as many people out of Afghanistan as possible, blaming the failure of Afghan leadership for the Taliban takeover. What uh, came as a surprise was the speed of the collapse uh, of uh, uh, the, the Afghan government and security forces. But we also need to look at NATO and our engagement and the hard lessons to be done. August, at least, anyway. Uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what day is it? Is it the uh, 20th? 23rd. 23rd. Yeah. We're basically oh, just okay. trying to work out when we last worked together. Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you. We'll just carry on as we were, shall we? Yeah. Uh, nice to see you. Yeah, very good. I'd morning. like to say you're looking really, really refreshed. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there is another line, but I won't All go right. There. All right, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about the markets. Indeed. I guess that's what everybody's tuned in to do. So, I mean, buy on the dips or sell on the uh, rallies? I think that's the interesting question for investors at the moment, isn't it, really? Uh, well, indeed. I mean, the former strategy has worked every single time we've hasn't seen a decent just? downtick. But actually, I was quite amazed. And I know you're going to cover the US markets. Yeah. But actually, it felt a lot worse week than it actually was. You'll, you'll come up with the week they moves and in a moment. But actually, it's not actually that bad, considering we've had a, the quickest doubling of the level of the S&P in, in pretty much history. And that's a challenge, isn't it? Because every time you think that this might be the big one, and of course everybody uh, you know who, who claims to have a CFA license is basically telling you at the moment that these markets are overextended and overbought, even at these levels. The trouble is, you can't walk away from the action, can you? We haven't worked together for what did you say, five weeks? Uh, something like that. Five weeks, but it's it's like watching the markets, even though you may have holidays and you may have other things going on through this period. You cannot walk away from these markets because every time we get one of these sell-offs, we get a rebound. Obviously, you've got to pick your time frame here. So this is how we closed out the session on Friday uh, with Robert Kaplan, you know, another Fed commentator saying, watch the Delta variant. We need to keep a firm eye on the economy. And that felt like what people were doing last week. If we can roll the boards and just take a look at um, how the markets performed uh, across the seven-day period, um, it seems like uh, oh, we've got the picture. 
Uh, so here you go. Here's the, here's the seven-day story. Everybody's catching up on a Monday morning, I think. It appears that some start after 6am and some before. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so here we are on the seven-day story. Uh, and this is your one-week change. And uh, as you can see here, <laughs> down 1.4%. And so last week, the market kind of uh, ran into some uh, treacle or molasses, as some people in America would say. Indeed. Um, but, the, but the point is here that it does seem to be getting harder to make strong gains uh, through this summer but it is the summer after all so who knows what we're going to do after that let's let's roll this one more time and let's um, just have a, a look at how the Asian session is doing and so Asia's doing a very good job here of trying to suggest that there is nothing to see here and this is not a shallower buy on the dips which is what the near-term data would actually suggest so even though we had that 200 point rebound on the Dow ultimately it wasn't enough to take us back above the plimps line and ultimately last week it was a weaker seven-day period for the U.S. session. So this morning Asian markets trying to build on that Friday legacy but of course there are so many other issues in the mix here which you're going to tell us about to do yeah. with commodities and to do with the, um, the, the speculation about how the Fed feels about the data at the well, moment which will matter for how strong this rally lasts across the week. Yeah, well you mentioned the plimsoll line which to our younger yeah. viewers is about uh, nautical levels of, uh, of where a boat sits in the water. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if they still teach that at school anymore. But anyway choppy waters. Choppy waters. Uh, and that's the point of that. The, the, the VIX I know we're going to move on to WTI and Brent at the moment but, but the VIX had such Stunning moves on. I mean, it started the week with a 15 handle, got up to its mid 20s level, then came off the ground as well. So you can see it on the screen now. Uh, where do we close on this one? 18.56. Look at that move on Friday. So the volatility on the volatility indicator fell 14% on Friday, and yet was up 20% for the week. These are huge moves, and that absolutely typifies August. You say August to anyone who's been in the market longer than 10 minutes, uh, and you will immediately get two reactions if they've been around, uh, said mentioned uh, that amount of time. One is that actually it can be such a quiet month and you just go away because you really can't get anything done. The liquidity is poor. Two, actually the volatility is quite fantastic in August because of the aforementioned lack of liquidity. Hence, you can get some decent sized movement, but trying to get in and out of positions is very difficult at that time of year. Um, very interesting, though, looking at the commodity space. And I think it typifies a lot of the fears that are out there in the market. I, I finished on Friday talking about fear buckets. And I have to be very careful how I said that on Friday, even more so on a Monday morning. Uh, but, but, but the point being is I, I, everyone's putting their fear into the same bucket. Mm. But actually, I believe there are different ones which are completely opposite. One, that we are going so fast that the tapering is going to be quicker uh, and that the Fed's going to withdraw that support from the financial markets. And we've got a brilliant guest later on talking about the disparity between financial markets and the real world. In fact, she's actually writing her latest book about that very issue as well. Nomi Prince will join us a lot later on as well. She wrote one about uh, central bankers uh, previously. Uh, uh, and secondly, the fear is about COVID and about a, a down coming very aggressively. And the third fear bucket, gosh, I'm feeling brave today, mm, is are. about valuations. Yeah. Uh, and when you've got Cape valuations on the S&P knocking on the door of 38 times as well, you have to be a little bit circumspect about some of this stuff, even if you're, you're in the Cathy Wood uh, bracket who thinks growth trumps all kind of current valuations. As well. Anyway, this is what WTI uh, and Brent and crude are doing at 
the moment because their moves last week were some of the biggest downticks we've seen in the last 12 months as well. Aggressive selling took Brent down to around about just over 65 bucks uh, later on uh, on Friday. So really struggled to get a rally going. Actually, he's managed to do that very well today so far as well. But is that also just a knee-jerk reaction to the fact that the dollar index was having a, a, a very good week last week. So let's have a look at one or two of the dollar crosses as well. You can see against the, the pound, 136. It wasn't so long ago uh, that we thought 141, 142 was a new base as well. Uh, the dollar versus the Japanese yen, again, knocking on the door of 110. Euro dollar. I mean, again, you know, so many people have talked about European stocks and the resurgence of the European recovery and the recovery fund being dished out plus the new budget going forward actually was going to set a new paradigm, a new base for European stocks. None of that at all. 117 still stuck in the old trading range. And right at the end there, the Swissy, 0.9163. Opening calls for European markets very quickly. I presume they're up. I haven't actually looked today. Here we go. Yes, look. Uh, 7122 on the FTSE 100. Kakaron had a really bad week, actually. If you think the FTSE and the DAX did, it was down the best part of 4%. But... Uh, but if I take away one six, look, it gets very portentous, doesn't it? I can take that one out as well, or that one. I don't know who I like. Anyway, so anyway, so six, six, six. <laughs> I'm sure there's nothing in it as well. US futures. Let's have a quick look at these. They're on a hot board, so I can get to the camera because I can't see them without. Uh, and I can tell you now, up 15 points is the implied open for the uh, S&P. The Dow Jones Industrial Average also called significantly higher at the start of trading. But do we have a, d- a packed data week? Does anyone care? about the data, because there's something else going on, isn't there, in the most beautiful setting on the planet? Uh, There is, uh, and we'll get to that in just a second. But I think the data does matter at this point. And I'm interested to know whether the action that we saw in the market to the end of last week was a reflection of shifting views on the inflation picture, because I know we had some data last week that threw the cat among the pigeons for those who think the Fed might be right and for those who think the Fed might be wrong. Mm. And the other issue, of course, is is the Delta variant, which we still, I think we still have a challenge. We haven't got... Uh, we still have Let a challenge here figuring out whether the Delta the... variant um, is going to be a permanent well, problem. We haven't ripped up the rundown for a while, so let's rip up the rundown, as they say, as right. Jonathan Ross would say. Uh, 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 what data back the Fed? Uh, I think the UK inflation data suggested actually that this could be transitory. You mean the sales of clothing? Have, have you, did you see the wage data no. last week? Uh, yes, I did, did you see the wage see data. And, and, but I this can't is, thump because I've got my cup of tea. Yes. But this is the challenge. I mean, what I said was there's something in the data for both sides of the argument at the moment. I didn't think there was a lot to say that it was transitory well, at the moment. Well, you've got the whole Fed that's still making the case that this Not is a transitory the phenomenon. two hawks out there saying. Well, I don't know. Well, we can agree to disagree on that point, can't yeah. we? Did you see the wage data, though? Uh, yes, I did. The number of vacancies out I didn't out feel there? it was coming to me, though, that that salary increase. Oh, no, it is. Is it coming did to you? Did they not tell you? Well, you've not been in for a while. They, yeah, you've got to meet the boss later. Oh, good that's news. the plan. I hope it's very good news. Uh, let's have a look at the uh, packed week we've got ahead then. Uh, later this morning, we get the latest uh, PMI numbers out of Europe, followed by the uh, United States. <coughs> Tomorrow, we'll get the latest reading on Germany's second quarter GDP, followed by the EFO survey on Wednesday. The Jackson Hole Symposium kicks off on Thursday which will now be a fully virtual event. We're also going to get the latest second quarter US GDP numbers. And on Friday, we have industrial data out of China, followed by US 
consumer data. I, I, I do believe the data is important. I really, really do. But I think you've got a Federal Reserve here which is determined or certainly feels very strongly that it knows that this is transient and this is about base effects as well. It may well be the case. And, and you know, people like me get put down from those very smart economists out there, you know, the, the Paul Donovans of this world, because they say you just really aren't looking at the, the right kind of facts as well. And I just say, well, I'm looking at the real world. And it really annoys me when we've got people in ivory towers who are not looking down at these enormous job shortages in many, many sectors, these enormous material shortages in many, many sectors, uh, and the fact that prices are rising. Now, it may well be transitory as well, but when I get serious CEOs coming on this channel, and, and it's virtually the only question I'm interested in in many ways. I mean, obviously, there's many nuances to their wonderful companies, but I want to know if they're seeing the, the right jobs being filled, and, and to a man and to a woman, the answer appears to be no. I want to see that they're getting hold of their materials. And to a man and to a woman, it is tougher than it was before. These feel like longer term inflationary factors. The chip shortage. I mean, you would have, of course, you couldn't move for that Toyota news towards the tail end of it last week about the fact that this is like one of the biggest companies on the planet was going to produce 900,000 cars, is now going to produce about 550,000 cars. Uh, in the month of September yeah. because it can't get hold of the stuff it needs. And is this going to alleviate anytime soon? Despite the enormous reaction from Chinese foundries uh, and Taiwanese foundries as well, they still can't get hold of the silicon. They still can't get hold of the chips. No, it is interesting. I mean, the Toyota You're right. Um, yeah, yeah, just a bit of a... I know, first time tight, you speak with telly voice, it just, it's, telly voice. Not, it's not easy, is but it? But the, the Toyota announcement, I think, just reinforced that view that this chip shortage is going to go on even further. But I, if I have to put my hat on the, the nail, as it were, um, I quite like the long view uh, economics analysis of this, which is that we have phases of inflationary pressure. I mean, the long-term argument is that inflation is ult ultimately a monetary phenomenon, yes. right? It's all about sure. money. But I don't think that's actually right. I think inflation is about expectations and about whether expectations of higher prices become embedded in society. Because if you believe prices are always going up, yeah. then you're going to demand higher the wages, the then CEOs you're going to expect that you have to pay more each time for a product. But it's possible that we could have a, a rundown of near-term inflationary pressure, but we still get um, an, an extension or an expectation that in some specific areas, inflationary pressures will be around for longer, like wages, for example, or semiconductors. But in other areas, we start to see some of the pressures abate. And I, I, I think that's a perfectly sensible argument because we know you can have a response in agriculture. We know you can have a response yes. in the oil market. You just release more. We know that in other areas of commodity production, you get a response when miners realise that they can benefit from higher sale prices. So I think it's quite possible that we do get some expectations embedded in certain parts of the economy, but in other parts, actually, they dissipate. The, the longer-term problem is, for the Fed and the other central banks, do those expectations become embedded, or do they ultimately start to wash out? Look... Let me just... Thank you for the water, by the oh, way. Oh, bless you. I hadn't yeah. touched it once. Oh. So you're OK. Oh. I, I, and I had a negative PCR mm. in the last couple of days, so you're mm. right. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but, but the point here as well is <coughs> what happened to the fact, and we've talked about this with markets compared with... What's happened to the fact, actually, this is what the central banks wanted. 
have we forgotten yeah. that they've got these? And you're the one who's brilliantly educated me for decades about it's a spurious 2% level anyway. Who in the world made up 2% as the level for Western economies to have inflation? But they did. Right. So let's go with it as well. They want growth. They want a little bit of inflation in the system. They think they can control a little bit of inflation. They don't want to see mid-70s inflation. They don't want to see 10, 20, mm. you know, hyperinflation that you see in some of these economies. We don't have to take noughts off our banknotes and what have you. But a little bit of inflation in the system. Well, for a start, in stunningly highly indebted government sovereigns as well and others as well, inflating your way out is one of the textbook ways uh, of actually getting your overall debt level down in real-world terms as well. So actually a little bit of inflation... It's supposed to be a good thing. A bit like when markets fell in the old... <laughs> Do you remember when there used to be moral hazard? I mean, we're going back a few years here. <laughs> when you used to own a stock, and actually, if it went down, the Fed didn't have your back on this one because, oh, my goodness me, what about the economic follow-through effects on the real economy as well? Well, actually, moral hazard got ripped up years ago. What happened to the fact that when you've got economic growth, a little bit of inflation creeping in, that is pretty good. You've got a labour force who's getting a slightly higher share than they have done for decades. Yeah. Is there a problem with that? I think all of that we're going to go back through with Nomi Prince later on in the programme, aren't we? Because she's got, she's, she's, uh, she's got a very quality. entrenched view about how badly she thinks the central banks are messing things up. But anyway, we'll get to that a lot later on. US Treasury Secretary <laughs> Janet Yellen has reportedly told senior White House advisers that she would be in favour of reappointing her successor, Jay Powell, as Fed chair. Neither the White House nor the Treasury Department have common commented on the uh, Bloomberg report, which indicates President Biden has yet to make a decision on the appointment and will likely make a decision around Labor Day next month. Uh, Beijing is reportedly considering forcing companies to hand over control of their data to third-party companies if they want to list on U.S. stock exchanges. The move could limit the transfer of data from mainland China to overseas. K.U. Jin is Professor of Economics at the London School of economics. Uh, welcome to our program once again. L let me just start with a, a very open question. Um, do you understand what China is ultimately trying to achieve through these actions around its technology sector? And why do we have the impression in the West that it is blunting the growth momentum of probably the most successful part of the Chinese economy in recent years? Um, I, I, it might be an impression, uh, and in certain parts of the Western world, it might even be a hope, as really China gears up uh, a whole, you know, national movement to advance its technology. Um, this move has uh, several implications. One is there could just be an increasing focus on the high-tech, um, hard-tech, uh, critical areas, which uh, China lags so far behind, even if it has the best business models for internet companies and the largest scale and people are making you know, tons of money as investors and billionaires. They want to shift the focus onto what uh, is part of China's um, stride to be technologically uh, independent. But uh, let me just say that reigning in big tech, uh, giving more con consumer protection, um, these are transnational issues. It's just that the move is so dramatic in China that it happens overnight and everybody is you know, fluttered. Um, but this kind of policy uncertainty has not been new uh, in China. Um it's been new in relatively recent years, particularly around the technology sector. I mean, we, we've been talking about this together 
uh, a lot in recent years about how the hands-off approach to Chinese technology companies allowed this very rapid development in lots of niche segments, but like facial recognition or robotics or autonomous vehicles. And yet here we are with look, what looks like a broad brush um, crackdown, if you like, which is beginning to raise in Western investors' minds a great deal of uncertainty. Is, is, is investors' money safe in Chinese technology. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC technology companies at the moment? Well, Jeff, I really don't think it's a broad uh, stroke approach. Uh, let's think about the Chinese growth model. Um, this has been around for decades. The same thing in industry, same thing in manufacturing, same thing in technology. Chaos, disorderly growth, um, skirting regulations, bending rules. The government lets you innovate and develop and help the regions develop, and then they come in to regulate you. That's been true with the property market, with manufacturing industries, and that's been true now recently with technology. So that's just um, a reality that China faces slower but more orderly growth under regulated box, more standards, meeting standards. I personally don't think it's a bad thing. We don't want, uh, you know, capital markets and the financial system and all these firms to be running running a wild, creating all these kind of problems. And now it's focused on technology. But the broad stroke, I don't think is a correct interpretation. Um, Education in particular has a very important political implication. There is a sh rising shadow education sector, which needs to be controlled because, you know, they want to know what's being taught to the kids. Uh, education competition has been considered the biggest factor decreasing family happiness in the last decade. And it's a very socially sensitive issues. Some believe that it is hampering uh, fertility rise, which is one of the government's um, focus areas. And then, of course, big Internet companies, platform economies, burning tons of cash, you know, distracting people's attention away to what people think are you know, mindless, idle uh, uh, time being spent. Uh, all of these resources could be directed to what China ne is needed to the most. But this is not going to kill entrepreneurialism by any means. All of this past successful entrepreneurs have been had to deal with these jungle surviving skills, which include treading a very fine line between policy, reacting to policy changes swiftly. And even in today's education sector, they will just be switching to educating adults, educating parents, ed training vocational workers. These companies should be nimble and flexible, and I, I bet they will be. Uh, Professor, are the aspirations of this crackdown, and you, you've laid it out brilliantly for us as well, are the aspirations of this from the Chinese authority point of view, actually, can they run in tandem with the aspirations of Chinese private corporates of becoming global entities, or actually, will the former thwart the latter? Uh, well, Steve, you know, I think there are lots of external uh, conditions at the same time 
that is making it very difficult for Chinese companies to become really global companies, as is their dreams, as the dream of entrepreneurs first to make it in China and to make it in the world. That might have been the case a few years ago, but recently with heightened U.S.-China tensions on both sides, uh, investments going into each country is being invoked to uh, stroke uh, national security considerations. Even very successful Chinese companies are meeting a great deal of difficulty for that global expansion. So even apart from uh, the internal changes and the the, the kind of regulations, uh, the geopolitical environment is making it very, very tough. And China has recently just expressed a, a policy shift inward. That's very different from China's embrace of globalization. Of course, it wants to preserve that kind of uh, that kind of role in the in the trading system, but the focus is now on the domestic economy. Make it big in the domestic markets, and you'll be a very successful entrepreneur. Stimulate domestic demand, um, and try to stay be independent from critical components elsewhere. Yeah, you might have to change my question actually, because you mentioned the word globalization, uh, and she looked for China, I believe, and you know it's better than I do, to to fill the gap when uh, the U.S. was looking more inward. Then you had a new administration that started re-signing up to international commitments and treaties and backing the G7 and NATO and what have you as well. So uh, is, is she and China actually retreating in the face of a more globalized U.S., or actually are these just things coincidental? It's moving in parallel. China's shift was, China's focus was too much on external economy. And of course, the financial, starting from the financial crisis 10 years ago, it alerted to China that it can't be so dependent on exports. And then, of course, the pandemic. And then President, you know, the President Trump's administration pandemic and uh, these anti-globalization uh, sentiment. So China wants to push both fronts, strengthening domestic economy at the same time, doing what it can to keep its position in the global economy. There's no doubt that President Xi wants to make China a very important economy, um, a political influence, and all of that. But it has to happen in parallel. Uh, K. Eugene, very nice to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us and giving Great us the views. Professor of Economics at the London School of Economics. Uh, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris is in Singapore today, kicking off a short trip to Southeast Asia. The vice president will meet several leaders in the region where she is expected to discuss security and trade issues as well as climate change. Uh, Rosanna joins us uh, from Singapore with more on the visit. Tell us a little bit more about where she's going and who she's meeting, Rosanna. Well, it's been a busy day so far for Kamala Harris, Jeff. Yesterday, it was a little quiet. She landed at Pailabar Air Base yesterday morning. Then we assume took a bit of rest given the time difference. But today, it's been all guns blazing. She's met with uh, Singapore's Prime Minister, Lee Sien Lung. She's met with Singapore's President, Halima Yaakob, as well. We are expecting a joint press conference with PM Lee anytime now. It was actually scheduled for about an hour ago. And for some reason, it's been delayed. So we stand by for that. Now, later on, today. She's actually going to be going to uh, Changi Naval Base, where she's going to board a US warship. So as you mentioned there, this covers a panoply of topics from security all the way through trade to climate change and pandemic preparedness as well. And on that topic tomorrow, after she delivers a major policy speech here in Singapore about America's relationship with Asia, it's quote, enduring commitment to this region. Kamala Harris will be heading to Vietnam, which currently is in the real thick of a massive COVID 
COVID surge tightened restrictions over the weekend. So it's going to be fascinating to watch the COVID protocols themselves for Harris and her delegation while she's there. Some of the meetings may even have to be virtual. She's going to be overseeing the regional opening of a CDC office, for example, in Vietnam. Meantime, while she's here in Singapore, of course, is pretty strict here, the COVID situation. So you'll see her wearing a mask a lot. She's undergoing thorough testing throughout. Now, in terms of some of the key issues here, of course, this couldn't come at a more politically sensitive time with what has happened in Afghanistan throughout the last week. That topic expected to loom large over these talks because any instability that emerges out of Afghanistan is not insignificant to many countries across Asia, but critically also impacts the US's reliability as a foreign policy partner. So it'll be interesting to see the kind of verbiage, the wording that is used around that and how Singapore positions itself as an ally with the US, not forgetting that the US overtook Europe last year as the biggest investor into Singapore. It's got Navy here, it's got planes, it's got lots of business as well, lots of tech companies. You were talking there with Steve just about semiconductor chips and that supply chain issue that we've seen throughout the pandemic. That is also going to be key when they get to Vietnam, which plays a critical role in the export of semiconductor chips. The US hoping to make it more of a key player to sort of ease its reliance on China. And of course, the so-called China challenge will loom large as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.